is uh, the kickoff uh, for all manner of things. It's good to see you here this morning. We had the uh, first pilot of our Saturday night service last night, and we were uh, oversubscribed. I became a little worried at some point that no one would be here this morning, so I'm glad uh, that some of you are here today. It's good to see you, and we're not only starting uh, all manner of programs back up in uh, the, the sort of fall kickoff, but we begin uh, today a new series, one on the Lord's Prayer, the 57 words that changed the world. 57 words that have been repeated billions upon billions of times by millions of people over the course of 2,000 years. 57 words that not only help us connect with God, but also frame up how we are to think about life, how, how we are to understand what is ultimately real. These are 57 words that are a gift to us from God himself. The disciples, they came to Christ. They had watched him from the, every angle possible. They had walked through life with him for quite some time, and they came alongside him, and they said, we want you to teach us how to pray. Now, interestingly, they, they did not ask him, teach us how to lead, or teach us how to teach, or teach us how to preach, or teach us how to counsel. We've got no record of that at all, but they have watched his life up close and personal, and they come alongside and they say, we, we know you, we see that you connect with the Father in this, in this profound way. Teach us, please, how you relate to God. Teach us how to pray. And so Christ gives them these words, these 57 words, which I would argue are more profound than any Ph.D. dissertation, more, more powerful than any symphony, than any math equation, than any book ever written. He gives us these sacred words. And we are going to begin unpacking them now in the course of this series. Now, I, I suspect that almost everyone here has these words committed to memory without ever even trying. But let's open the text and read them in their context. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer is actually found in two different places, Matthew 6 and Luke 11, the synoptic gospels called synoptic because they are sort of synonymous. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a very similar pattern. They repeat a lot of things. We find the Lord's Prayer in both of them. They're slightly different. Matthew 6 is the, is the more common and more popularly known, and, uh, and the, the Luke passage gives us a little bit more of a setup, is what it does, but it leaves a little bit out as well. The setup is that uh, the disciples have watched Christ pray, and as soon as Jesus has finished praying, they go to him and say, uh, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray, we would like you to teach us how to pray. Here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we don't get that set up. We get a slightly different uh, sort of prologue to this. I'm going to be beginning reading with verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, 
Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, there are uh, a number of things that we probably should uh, establish before we jump into this prayer. I think it's significant to note that the disciples had to be taught how to pray. There's a sense in which all of us know intuitively how to cry out to God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that everybody knows there is a God. There are some things that we cannot not know. One of them is that God exists. Now, we can deny that truth. We can squelch it. We can dismiss it. But ultimately, everybody knows there's a God. And as they say, there's, you know, the atheist prays in a foxhole. In, in, In a crisis, we know how to cry out to God. But it's significant that the disciples have to be taught how to pray. Because it's not a generic prayer to a generic God. And in fact, the things that Christ instructs them to pray are probably not the things we would think about on our own to pray for. Secondly, it's probably worth at least noting somewhere that this is not technically the Lord's Prayer. This is not a prayer that Jesus himself would have prayed because he asks for forgiveness. He is teaching us how to pray. If you want to read the Lord's Prayer, we are given this remarkable window between uh, the communication, into the communication between the Father and the Son in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. But we call this the Lord's Prayer. If you call that the Lord's Prayer, everyone would think you're wrong, but it's just worth noting this is not a prayer that Jesus prayed. And I think it's also worth noting what Jesus didn't say when the disciples asked him to teach him how to pray. If, if, shamefully, I'm sort of sad to admit this, but if you ask me how to pray, I would not say this. I, I realized that last week. If someone asked me how to pray, I start babbling about, uh, you know, the theology behind prayer and how you ought to pray different types of prayer. And in the morning, you should pray this kind of a prayer and use the Psalms as a guide. And I'd say all manner of things. Jesus doesn't do any of that. <laughs> He says, you want to know how to pray? Here's how to pray. Pray this. And he gives them this prayer. Now, please don't think that this is the only thing we're supposed to pray. There are other prayers found in Scripture. I think that what we get here is a pattern. We we get an outline for how we are to think about prayer. Although, you would do well to pray this prayer a lot. I don't want you to think it's, it's magic, it's not a chant, you know, we don't just recite it mindlessly. It is something that is to engage our hearts. But I'm going to challenge you to pray this prayer at least once a day. Because I think it is a, it is a powerful, life-changing set of words. In fact, I, I almost feel like I ought to give you a little bit of a warning. Don't pray this prayer, seriously, if you're not willing For there to be some significant disruption in your life. Because these words will change the way you think. 
they are that profound. Well, there, there are some other things that we might note by way of setup, but let's just uh, sort of take the, this prayer, these 57 words, one word at a time. Beginning with the first word, which in the Greek, word order is a little different, in the Greek the word is Father. Jesus does not say, when you pray, pray like this, oh, great first cause, right? Oh, unmoved mover, right? He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. And what you have to understand is, this is radical stuff. Best we can tell, no one was calling God Father until Christ comes along and teaches us to do that. The the Stoics weren't doing it. The Epicureans weren't doing it. The Jews were not doing it. Jewish prayers in the Old Testament tend to, to, to pile up. They tend to sort of collect lofty titles for God. But they don't call him Father. They recognize God to be the Father of creation and God to be the Father of their nation. But they did not call him Father like Christ calls him Father. This was a, was a significant breach of religious protocol. When Christ says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. This was, this was shattering to, to, the, to the sort of distant angry, somewhat removed cosmic police officer and judge that people were used to thinking about. And to make it even more radical, the term that Christ uses when he says, pray our Father, is the, is the Greek or Aramaic, Aramaic term Abba, which is uh, the word that a child uses to refer to their, parent, to their dad. It, it's sort of probably best translated as daddy. Now, the term Abba also is used by adults to speak to people uh, as a reference to people who are older than they are, whom they respect. It's, it's, a, it's a title of reverence, but it's a title of familiarity. It's a title of, of intimacy and, and immediacy. We, we don't have the right English word that sort of falls between father and daddy, but somewhere in there is this term. And and it is the word that Jesus uses. And this would have been profoundly shocking to everyone that that is how Jesus suggests we come to the creator of heaven and earth. When you pray, say, Abba, Father. We we can't appreciate how profound this is in part because um, (laughs) for 2,000 years, which includes all of our lives, Uh, People have called God Father very routinely. It's perhaps the the most frequent way people begin their prayers. So we we miss the shock of this being new. And in terms of the the pendulum that sort of swings between God's reverence and God's immediacy, we're sort of much more on the casual immediacy side of things, and so we don't appreciate it. There are some ways you might uh, frame this up. I mean, perhaps you've been around someone who's very distinguished and uh, you would never think of calling them anything other than sir or Mr. This or Mrs. That. And someone uses a, a you know, casual nickname for them. And that sort of is a bit jarring. I, I remember a friend of mine uh, when I was in graduate school who he had come from a British colony. And he was quite incensed because he had watched uh, a, a TV program in which uh, Robin Williams was speaking at some Washington, D.C. event doing a comedy stand-up routine where the Queen of England was present. 
And at some point, he turns to the queen and he says, uh, Your Majesty, we're a little bit less uh, pretentious here. Do you mind if I call you Betty? Uh, how about Liz? You know, and, and my friend from this British colony says, that, that chap ought to be arrested. That, that, that you don't do that. that, that that's, that's un, it's unacceptable. Well, you can get a little bit of what it would have been like in Christ's day with with the the Jews who would not even say the name of God because it is too holy for Jesus to say, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, Abba, Daddy, Father. The second word in the Greek is the word our. And uh, this is uh, just a small point grammatically, big point theologically. When Jesus prays, to his father in John 17, it's my father. When he talks to us about uh, relating to God, especially as sinners, he often says, your father. Here he teaches us to pray, our father. And, and part of what this just reminds us of is that the relationship that Christ has with the father is one that we will never mirror. Jesus is God himself. He is part of the triune Godhead. He has existed from eternity past. He was present before there was anything else. He speaks the world into existence. It is in the fullness of time that he in some manner veils his deity in order to add manhood to godhood through the incarnation. And he becomes uh, the son of God in that context. But we are never the sons or children of God in the same way that Christ is the son of God. Altogether different. We get adopted into the family. He is part of the, the Trinity itself. And the second way that this word is probably significant is just to, to recognize how different it would be if we were taught to pray, My Father who art in heaven, give me this day my daily bread, as opposed to understanding the the sort of corporate community sense that we're called into. Americans are, are notoriously independent, and this speaks against that. It calls us into community. It calls us to share our lives. It's not my Father. It is our Father. Along that lines, I, I, I should point out that, uh, that the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer that uh, in the early church anyone could pray. Because uh, while we tend to coming out of the 60s and out of the comparative religion movement to think about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, Scripture is pretty clear that every person can think about God as their creator and as their judge. But you can only think of God as your father if you are willing to be adopted into the family, if you step over the line, if you enter the circle of love, if you accept Christ as your Savior, then God becomes your Father. We are adopted into the family. But in the early church, you couldn't pray this prayer unless you had made a decision that Christ was your Lord. Well, so God who can reveal himself in any way to us, he's God, he controls everything, Everything we know about him is what he has chosen to tell us, chosen to reveal in some way. He chooses to reveal himself to us as a father. Now, what what is behind that? I I, want to pause just for a second and recognize 
that for some of you, that's a very problematic term because earthly fathers, such as myself, do lots of things wrong and are selfish and blind and just act like jerks from time to time and sometimes act like jerks all the time. There are fathers who are uh, just problems right from the beginning, who hurt children or who abandon children. And so the idea of of father is not a term that that warms your heart. And so I want to say to you, you have to look beyond that. Jesus speaks a little bit about this in Matthew 7, where he says, earthly fathers who love their kids (laughs) do, do good things, but nothing like the perfect heavenly father. What is, what is a father supposed to do? Let's, let's think about that. What, what, is, what is being conveyed by this idea that God is our father? Well, I would suggest at least three things. The first being access. When I grew up, there was a, a president. And when I was born, there was a president in the White House who had little kids. And there's a sort of famous, iconic picture of uh, John John Kennedy, a little boy playing at the feet of his father in the Oval Office. We're back in that kind of a setting today. President Obama has daughters in the White House. I would simply point out to you that his daughters have access to him, that leaders in Congress, captains in industry, heads of state do not have. No one has the access that the kids have because they're his children. I had a friend whose dad was a professor of economics at Miami of Ohio, and he said that one of the things that really sort of warmed his heart was the the recognition that after class was over, and he was 15 or 16, 17 at the time, and he wanted to, they had a car that they would exchange, and he would want to go in and get the keys to the car, and he says the lecture would be over, and he goes, all these people would go flooding up to talk to my, to my dad. I knew that all I had to do was say, hey, dad, and I got right to the head of the line. He would look to me. No one else had the access that I had because I was his child. One of the things that we are given as we are adopted into the family is access to the Father. Secondly, there is this sense of devotion or unconditional love. You have um, undoubtedly seen some kind of report, read a report about um, parents who act in heroic ways for their children. We Men's Fraternity, which kicked off this past Friday, we often uh, play some sort of clip. One of the clips that we've, that we've played is uh, the Hoyts, uh, Dick and Rick Hoyt, and they, they show this, uh, you know, the, the son is, is an adult son, but significant physical uh, limitations, but he loves to be outside, loves to be in races, and over time, uh, they actually entered and f- competed in the Ironman competitions with his father uh, swimming, carrying him in this raft, and then he, he puts him on a bike and he pedals, and then they, they push him in, in the, you know, the marathon. And it's just, I mean, you know, there's not a dry eye watching this. It is so powerful. And there's other reports like this. I saw one not long ago where a father whose 
whose son had been uh, significantly injured in a bicycle accident, uh, changed his job so he could work second shift. And for 13 years, he would work second shift. He would come home. He would get his son up. He would, he would carry his son to college classes. He would take notes for him. He would help him study. And his son was graduating. And there's this you know, report and this celebration. And of course, the reporter is, is saying to the father, you know, you have, you have been heroic. You, you, have, you have gone beyond the call of duty. And the father is saying, I'm not a hero. I'm a dad. This is what you do. This this wasn't a sacrifice. I love my son. This is is what you do when you love your child. You care for them. Well, God loves you. God loves his children. See, you have to understand, and most people don't get it, and even when they think they get it, we don't get it, We think this love from God is conditional. And so God loves me when I'm being good. Well, newsflash. You are never good. The standard is too high. We are not good. We are broken, fallen. Our best intentions are, are, are falling short. God loves us while we are yet sinners. That's the report. When we come to the mercy of God, when we cry out, when we humble ourselves and and accept this gift that God has given, we are adopted into the family. We are loved by virtue of being in the family. And parents get this, right? Because you have children and you love these children no matter what they do. Now, you, you, you don't always like them. You're not always pleased with what they're doing. You're, you're, you're thinking you might ground them till they're 45 years old. I mean, there's, there's a, there is a tension there. But you always love them. There is an unconditional love that comes from a father to their child. And then a third piece here would be Privileges. The the Jews understood themselves to be servants of God. The Christians came along and understood themselves to be children of God. And there are privileges that come with being a child of God. Growing up, when I was in high school, I I caddied in a PGA tournament in the Quad Cities. It was the uh, Ed McMahon Quad Cities Open. No doubt you've heard of it. It, um, It... it tragically uh, happened to run the same time as another golf tournament, uh, the British Open, so it didn't get as much press. But there was this golf tournament, it's now the Deer Classic, and uh, I caddied in a couple years. And one year, I ended up caddying for Ed McMahon's son, Jeff, who was my age, 15 at the time. Uh, Jeff wasn't a golfer. This was a little awkward, uh, caddying for someone who'd never golfed in a tournament with lots of people watching you. But... I caddied for him in the pro-am, and then the next day, he said to me, or that, that, that afternoon, he says, you know what, I, I came out here, my dad wanted me to come because he wanted me to be here. He goes, but really, he's got a thousand things going on. I'm not getting any time with him. Why don't you come out? We'll hang out together. 
And so I went out the next day, and we're sort of knocking around, and I'm, you know, we talked to Ed, and then Ed says, hey, you know, why don't you guys go get that cart that I saw over there, and why don't you drive that around? Well, the PGA had on display this souped-up golf cart. It was behind, you know, felt rope, and it's got Rolls-Royce grill, and it's got a TV and a wet bar. I mean, you know, it's just this souped-up golf cart. So we're 15-year-old boys. He says, go take the golf cart. So we go running over there. We move the, you know, the barrier. We hop in the cart, and we start driving away. Well, um, there were some uh, officials who chased us and started screaming at us. Uh, what are you doing? And it was, you know, about a three-minute scream fest. And at the end of it, this one guy says, I'm curious. I mean, he goes, I'm just baffled. How is it that you thought you could just hop on this cart and drive away? What, what possible idea came across your mind that you would think that you could take this golf cart? And I'm, I mean, I'm cowering at this point. I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to be taken to the gate and let go. And, but Jeff says, well, my dad told me we could. And this guy says, your dad told you you're good. Your dad told you you're good. That's great. Just who does your dad think he is? And Jeff said, Ed McMahon. And this guy sort of, you know, <laughs> looks at us and he says, really? And this other guy next to him is like, mm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> have fun. <laughs> and off we went. Now, I want to be clear uh, that being a child of God does not you know, mean you drive Rolls-Royce golf carts, and, and I emphasize this because there are some people who suggest that somehow those things follow, and instead I would say when we are ad- adopted into the family of God, we are expected to embrace the values of that family, and what we see with Christ is that uh, you go to the end of the line, and you serve, and, and you pick up your cross, and you follow him, but make no mistake, We become heirs of the promises of God. We are adopted into the family of God. We are are promised eternal life in the presence of God. There are privileges that come with calling God Father. Well, there is uh, more here, but let me just draw this to a close by issuing uh, a couple challenges to you. The first is very simple. Over the course of uh, the next couple months as we are moving our way through this uh, prayer, I want to encourage you to pray the prayer at least once a day. I've been clear, I hope, that, that I think the baseline for following Christ includes daily time with him. This 10 plus 10, 10 minutes of reading scripture, 10 minutes of prayer every day. I think that's the starting point. I don't think you can hope to grow if you're not doing this 10 plus 10. So at that time or during grace at meals, some point every day I want to encourage you to pray thoughtfully the Lord's Prayer. The second challenge, the second part of this challenge is to do something. And I'm not sure exactly what that something is, but I know that uh, this sort of is more the beginning of the year than January 1st is the beginning of the year. This is when your schedule is, is going to take on shape that it will follow from here forward. Some of you, the challenge to take a next step means to be more uh, disciplined and committed to showing up 
at church every week. And just reminder, we've now started a Saturday night service. We are trying to take away any and every excuse. I want to encourage you to be in church somewhere on a weekly basis. That's, that's part of what's expected. For some of you, it may be taking a next step with Christ. And, and perhaps as I talk about this fact that, you know, you, you can't necessarily pray this prayer unless you have stepped into the circle of grace. You have made that decision. And you might, might not be certain that you have. You heard Sabrina share her testimony. Perhaps you're still trying to figure these things out. So I want to encourage you to sign up for Alpha. We're doing Alpha slightly differently this year. We've been doing it for years. This year, this fall, I'm teaching Alpha. It's eight sessions, eight Tuesday nights. It's a meal, it's a 30-minute presentation, and it's discussion. So, if you're a skeptic, if you're a seeker, if you're a new believer, haven't been through Alpha, I want to encourage you to sign up. This is going to start in about a week and a half. Perhaps what you need to do is to get into a small group. Or you need to revamp your small group. And during this Lord's Prayer series, we are preparing sermon-based small group discussion questions. So we're making it very easy for you to take that next step. And if you're not in a small group, you can sign up for one. Or there's actually a a discussion group that is going to meet starting in about 15 minutes. Maybe it's serving. We've been talking about Forrestal. Uh, we were uh, this school that we're, we're coming alongside. We handed out 450 backpacks a week and a half ago as these kids started. We've got a festival, carnival coming up. Last year we had uh, over 600 people come out for that carnival. We've got that carnival coming up in two weeks. Maybe you want to come alongside some kids and just encourage them for the afternoon as a next step. I don't know what the next step is for you, but I know now's a good time to take one. And so I set that before you. Well, as the worship team comes back in, and as opposed to me closing in prayer, I want uh, to invite you to join with me. If you would all please stand, and we are going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory 